Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Rick Thomas here. Thank you so much for joining me for Life Over Coffee. If you want to check out the best counseling center in the world, the the most wonderful sanctification center that there is, please come to our coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com. We deal with all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so if you're struggling with a personal problem, a relational uh, tension or a situational difficulty, well then Life Over Coffee is your place because I have been producing content since 2008 and there's a lot of resources on our website and we we give almost all of our resources away and so if you haven't heard of lifeovercoffee.com, please take advantage of it because you will truly benefit from it. And of course, as always, we request that you share our stuff with 1,000 of your closest friends. Now, someone wrote in and they asked what could be one of the most challenging questions that an individual could ask, specifically as it pertains to the local church. Let me give you the title of what I want to talk about, and it will explain everything that you need to know. The title of this is Eight Signs of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. It is a thing. It happens more often than we might realize. Of course, now that we live in the age of social media, we hear about it more than we ever have heard before. And that is a good thing when we have the ability to communicate appropriately what is going on, especially when there is this kind of sin happening in the church. And so what I want to do is to give you a list of eight things that I trust will help you uh, to be on the lookout for, not in an uncharitable, judgmental way. We don't ever want to live cynically. That is no way to live. However, we do want to live with discernment, and we want to have our eyes wide open as we charitably engage each other. And as we do that, there will be times that in the local church setting. Now, spiritual abuse happens in other contexts as well, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. But as we gather in one of the primary spheres where all Christians live, and that is as a community of faith, as we assemble together in our local churches, well, obviously, because we're all fallen, no one has reached a state of perfection yet uh, that will come in glorification. Of course, there's going to be situations in the church where bad things happen to people, and we want to be on a lookout for it. And so what I want to do here is I want to share with you the question that one of our supporting members wrote in and asked, and then I will get into a a detailed explanation that is alongside the title of, of this talk, Eight Signs of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. We do have supporting members at lifeovercoffee.com. These are people who pay so much a month or a year because they want to interact with me and our team behind the paywall in a private setting. And so we have forums at lifeovercoffee.com, and that part is a paid subscription that anyone can be part of. And because we, because I am not able to converse on social media because we have thousands, multiplied thousands of people, and we get requests 
all every day uh, throughout the week, throughout the year. I'm not able to keep up with that. But we do have a private space where I do dialogue with people. And so people ask questions. Our, our members ask questions. But sometimes the questions that they ask are so important that I want to give them a fuller, detailed response and then actually create an article, which is what I have done here, a podcast, which this is being turned into, as well as a video, because this question is just that important, and I did not want to keep my response just behind our paywall. And so if you want to read this article or watch or listen to it, you can go to lifeovercoffee.com and look for eight signs of spiritual abuse in the church. All you have to do is type in spiritual abuse and you will find this content here in a read, watch, listen format. And so let me read to you the question that our supporting member asked, and then let's jump right into it. He said, can you give some clear examples of signs of how a pastor or church leader is crossing the line from being a shepherd to being a spiritual abuser? It would be helpful to know when to support a pastor when he is genuinely trying to defend and protect his flock from outside and wrong influences versus a pastor who has an agenda and is above questioning or accountability. The lines sometimes seem blurred, and I would appreciate your help distinguishing these differences. Now, again, uh, this was a question that was asked by a supporting member, and I, I want to give you my response to him in this public forum because, again, I want everyone to benefit from this response because this is a thing, and, and without being that cynical soul, we do want to be the discerning believer who is on lookout because, uh, again, uh, we all have our issues, and this is one of the bigger issues that we see in Christendom today. And so I'm going to uh, share with you, just as I was talking to him, and that's how my response is going to be uh, here. What you're calling spiritual abuse happens when someone is determined to evilly manipulate another person to accomplish an ungodly agenda. Now, he is calling it spiritually a uh, spiritual abuse. I am saying that it is an individual who has predetermined that he is going to evilly manipulate someone to accomplish an ungodly agenda. Anytime anyone sins against another person, including physical and sexual harm, it is spiritual abuse. I mean, if you hit someone... That is spiritual abuse. Uh, if you yell at someone, that is spiritual abuse. Or maybe a better way of labeling spiritual abuse is the disordering of one's soul. I prefer that label, though I know that it's more succinct to say spiritual abuse, but it's important for us to understand what is going on internally when spiritual abuse happens. Our souls are supposed to be ordered. 
We are supposed to be experiencing shalom of the soul, which is what Christ gives to us when we are born again. To be in Christ is to experience a freedom, a relaxedness, a shalom, a, a peace that transcends all the nonsense of our world. Our souls were disordered because of the fall of Adam, and that is how we came into the world. And then we are regenerated. We are born a second time, and there begins this process of ordering our souls in a way in which they were always meant to be. But when someone comes along and spiritually abuses us, again, I like saying disordering of one's soul because it, it really gives a, a, a clearer descriptor of what is happening internally. You see, you cannot physically or sexually harm someone without adversely affecting their inner being their spiritual selves. All sin, no matter what it is, if it's external, physical sin, as I am illustrating here, it will affect us internally. It will begin a disordering process of our souls. Now, I realize that your question is not asking about physical or sexual abuse, but you are asking about the internal adverse impact on one's soul I am saying that all sin does that, and so I'm beginning with a comprehensive global perspective about what all sin accomplishes, including spiritual abuse. Humans are two parts. We call that a dichotomy. We are a physical and spiritual being rolled into one. And the spiritual aspects of a person, is it, the, the word soul is like a basket word, and it includes all aspects of our internal being, our spirit, our mind, our will, our emotions, our thoughts, our intentions, our motivations, etc. And then the physical part of our and so body, it is like a basket word as, as well. And there are several parts in the physical basket too, like internal organs, external body parts. And so spiritual abuse happens to the soul that non-organic part of us, which primarily affects our mind. So when you are being spiritually abused, your soul is experiencing the abuse. And specifically, the aspect of your soul that is experiencing the abuse is your mind, how the abused person thinks. And then out of that, what you will see is emotional manifestations that flow from their thought processes. You see, spiritual abuse takes the victim's thoughts captive, kind of what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 10. And it captures the abused mind, and the spiritual abuser is manipulating them into believing lies. Now, suppose the internal disordering of the soul continues unabated. Because the antagonist's sin continues that he or she will not relent from adversely and evilly manipulating this person internally, disordering their soul. Well, in that case, it will exponentially affect the person spiritually, especially how they relate to God and others. Darkness will come over this individual's soul. It can lead to depression and despair. It can lead to despondency and even suicide.
It also leads to erratic behaviors like random anger, fear-motivated withdrawal, or alleviating mechanisms like alcohol or medications. You see, alleviation happens to someone more than you may think, which makes this question that you're asking relevant. Their soul is disordered. They feel out of joint. They have been gaslit into believing lies, and it is relentless, and their soul just continues to deconstruct. And as it does, they are grasping for any mechanism that they can find to try to have some kind of solid footing, but they can't. It can lead them to random anger or in an alternative way to fear-motivated withdrawal or isolation. They're just trying to survive. And sometimes the pressure on them with the continual disordering or spiritual abuse of their souls, uh, they can turn to alcohol and medication. And there are a lot of people that are in this uh, position where they are deconstructing right before our eyes. And they can come to our church meetings, be part of our local assemblies, and this is happening to them and you not even know it. The most common place where you find spiritual abuse is in contexts where someone has authority over someone else. Whether that authority or that power is God-given or self-proclaimed, what you will find in many cases is that the person does have God-given authority over another individual, but they abuse that authority. And in a self-proclaiming way, they go beyond what God ever intended for a person in authority to ever become. Bad marriages and horrible churches are two of your typical breeding grounds for this type of sinful activity perpetrated on the vulnerable. It can also occur in work environments. Again, you have that hierarchical structure of the employer and the employee. In these contexts, there are God-given hierarchies, and one of the things that we want to be careful is that we don't throw the hierarchy out with the bathwater. I have seen too often where people who have been abused or they are adjacent to people who have been abused, and they overreact by throwing out a hierarchical structure as though we should not have any pastors or we should not have any husbands who lead their wives or we shouldn't have any teachers or any employers in the work environment. These biblical structures are biblical structures. There is nothing wrong with them or the intent of them because hierarchy is God's design. But these biblical structures can become dangerous when the sinful person wants to dominate someone. See, the problem is not with the structure. The the problem is not with God's design. The problem is when a fallen person takes God's design and corrupts it for his own nefarious purposes. God pre-wired people to follow and submit to others. Paul called Christians to follow Christians. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, Follow me as I follow Christ. He is in an authoritative position to the people that he is asking to follow him. His protege, Timothy, was a person who was submitted to Paul. There is nothing wrong with it. In fact, it is absolutely biblical. Our culture calls this the herd mentality, which is it's an unfortunate connotation. 
Christians call it biblical wisdom and humility to submit and follow. The world doesn't function well without hierarchical structures. As we see in our current equal outcome culture where everyone is on the same plane, the same level, functionally speaking. Now, it is true that we are all equal before God as individuals made in the image of God. But two things can be true at the same time. We can be all equal, made in the image of God. But there is also hierarchy as far as our function is concerned. If you remove the civil authorities as though we aren't to submit to them, chaos ensues, and we're seeing that all over the world now. And so we aren't supposed to level the playing field and create an equality that functions without a hierarchy because it will not function well, and we know this. Again, the problem is not the hierarchy. It is people in positions of authority who abuse the hierarchy, and that is the issue. God did not wire us to be independent gods, little g-o-d-s, but to follow him and to follow others, making a hierarchy crucial for our well-being. Thank God for fathers and, and mothers. Thank God for teachers and civil servants. Thank God for employers. Thank God for pastors. You see this notion throughout the Old and the New Testaments. God elevated leaders for his people to follow. And so far, so good. But again, the problem comes when some leaders forget their God-given call and God-illuminated directives for leading others well. And so the method is not the problem. What God has implemented is not the issue. Not many of you should become teachers, James says in James 3.1. He says, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. God knew that there would be problems in the hierarchical structure because of our fallenness. But he did not remove the necessity of having hierarchy, but he did warn us uh, that there will be a stricter judgment on those who abuse the position that they have to lead others well. And so my friend's question is a dangerous one, at least on two fronts. It is dangerous because it can unsettle and even destroy a local church. And that's why I appreciate the carefulness and the sobriety with which he approaches this subject, because there are souls at stake. If there is no spiritual abuse, discretion is paramount so that our Christian brothers and sisters are not discouraged by this discourse? If there is spiritual abuse, then caution is crucial because our Christian brothers and sisters are in harm's way, and they need help. And so you must warn them, and intervention must happen. And so you see this two-pronged danger, and he is approaching this with humility and sobriety because it could be that the spiritual abuse that he thinks he sees is not happening, and we want to be careful with the discourse. But then the other prong of the danger is it could be what he sees is accurate. And if, that ca if that's the case, then there are brothers and sisters who are no doubt standing in harm's way, and there must be action from the body of Christ to intervene for the vulnerable.
The other group of people that you want to think about are those who reject our religion. And this saddens me too. Not, not as much as those who are being abused, but this is sad that we give ammunition to those who already reject God and they already have well-stocked arsenals. And then the most significant concern is God's fame. We want to make God's name great in all that we do. And so we cannot ignore potential spiritual abuse, especially when you are made aware that it is happening. To be silent about the abuse makes us culpable, culpable in a less consequential way, granted, but it makes us culpable. We are not doing the abuse, and in a less consequential way, we, we are guilty if we are silent when abuse happens. And so I appreciate my friend's love for humanity, his affection for the body of Christ. I admire his courage because he's willing to speak up on a far more critical matter than some of the things that we like to turn into arguments. And so to answer the question that he wrote in and asked about, hey, can you help me distinguish between a good pastor who is protecting the flock and and negative outside influences and a pastor that is above questioning and above accountability? Now, the way that I'm going to answer this question is I'm going to ask you eight questions. And the reason I'm asking you eight questions is because it would be foolish for me to pretend that I know the answer to the question that you're asking me when I do not know what's happening. I am not there. I, I don't even know who you're talking about. I'm not in whatever local church that, that you are referring to. And so I want to be careful as I interact and engage this discourse because, again, I'm not there, and so I'm exercising the same carefulness that you are. So the way that I want to respond to you is to give you eight questions so that you can make the assessment yourself as to whether you believe that there is spiritual abuse happening in your local church. And so I do understand the problem, and I will provide you with eight signs of spiritual abuse in a question format, and I do trust that these responses will help you determine what might be happening in your situation. Now, also understand that my questions do not represent an exhaustive list or a list in order of importance. I'm just going to lay out eight here, and you may find that some are more important to you than others. That's fine. You can order the list however you wish, and you can add to this list if you prefer. But let me also tell you, as far as self-disclosure is concerned, these eight signs of, of possible abuse... These are things that happened to me. I was a part of a ministry a few years ago. I was an assistant pastor in a local church that was a part of a larger ministry, and I experienced all eight of these things. It was the worst five years of my Christian experience, and nothing else comes close. I was in an abusive situation, and it was absolutely horrific as what this person is asking is spiritual abuse. I am careful about using the word abuse because it's such an elasticized word in our culture today. Everything is abuse. 
There's so much abuse. It's all over the place. And unfortunately, uh, the word has lost its velocity and it's lost its potency because everything fits up under an abuse construct with some people. And that's why I was using the terminology of a disordered soul. During those five years as an assistant pastor in a local church, my my soul was incrementally becoming disordered moment by moment, step by step. It was a horrific experience to where eventually I just walked away from it because there was no other choice. From a conscience perspective, I could not make what was happening in that local church right because it was wrong. It was evil, some of the stuff that was happening in that church. And I was the point of the sphere for most of that stuff that was happening. I was feeling the brunt of it more than anyone else. And I couldn't tweak my conscience enough to say that this is okay. I also could not bring any change because I spoke into it many, many times. And so eventually I just left and got away from it. And it took me two years to overcome uh, what had happened to me during that five-year period. And I mean that literally. It took over two years to work through that. It was such a traumatic experience on my soul. I did not respond cynically to where I walked away from the church altogether. But, and, and, and this is something that's important for all of us to hear, that when bad things in the church happen, that, that our response can't be an overreaction of just leaving the church altogether. No, there are more good churches out there than bad churches, and we need to be part of a local body. And uh, my wife and our family, we became part of a local body, but we had to leave that one because there was so much of what is called here uh, spiritual abuse happening. The way I would frame it, there was a whole lot of sin happening, and it was having an adverse effect on my soul, and my soul was becoming disordered by the day. And so the eight things that I'm going to share with you are my eight things. These are the things that I saw. Now, again, that's why you can probably add to the list, but if you find a pastor or a person in an authoritative position that represents the majority of these eight things here, well, then you have to do something about it. So again, the title of this is Eight Signs of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. And again, I'm going to put all eight of these signs in a question format so that you can do the evaluation yourself. And the first one is, number one, do you have to ask? I mean, do you have to ask? If you have to ask whether a person is spiritually abusive, that may be your first sign. I mean, think about Jesus here. Nobody asked that question about him. I mean, nobody with any common sense. I know that the Pharisees were knuckleheads, and they made up stuff and distorted stuff. But a person with common sense, a person in their right mind and, and, and really loves God and loves others and directionally is heading uh, that way, if they're seeing something that really seems off, I mean, well, maybe— Probably there is something that is off. I, I think about, I gave you the illustration of Jesus because he's a great illustration, but I also think about uh, our lead pastor at our local church. That's just not a question that I would ask about him. I am not asking that question. 
because he's not like that at all, and there's nothing about him that emanates or manifests anything that would come within the universe of being spiritually abusive. And so that's why my first sign is, in question form, do you have to ask? If you have to ask whether a person is spiritually abusive, then that may be your first sign. If you're sitting under a pastor and you have a general sense of uneasiness about him, then you need to explore this. Now, let me give you a sequential order about exploring this. I talked earlier about there's a danger here. If it's not happening, then you, you really want to keep the net tight. Uh, you want to keep the, the sphere of communication about this really, really tight because if it's not true, then, uh, well, you don't want that to get out there. But that does not mean that you do not explore the possibility. And so we want to stay out of the ditches. And one ditch is just sharing it everywhere to anyone uh, willy-nilly without discernment. And then the other ditch, of course, is not saying anything and not moving forward with any kind of engagement to explore or the possibility of what might be going on. And so if you sense, if there's a general sense of uneasiness about uh, the person in authority, then you need to explore it in this sequential order. Number one, start with your own thoughts. Start in your mind. And start with this article here, Eight Signs of Spiritual Abuse. And then number two, with God. Make your request known to God. Ask the Spirit of God to give you illumination on what you uh, think you are observing. Find that affirmation through prayer as you study God's Word. And so God will speak to you through His Word, and you speak to Him, and you wrestle with this in your mind. You can pull this article out to have farther, further clarity, which is, by the way, what my friend is doing here. And then number three, start with your thoughts. Then with God. Then number three, with your spouse if you are married. If you're not married, then possibly a close confidant. You need to talk to one other person. And again, we want to incrementally increase the sphere of knowledge. And we do that with discretion, but we also do it with wisdom and courage. And then number five, please keep a tight net around your thoughts, at least initially. It will become apparent to all if you are right, but if you are not right, you do not want to mischaracterize a person's reputation or discourage others unnecessarily. And so there is wisdom here, and I'm appealing to you that if there's a general uneasiness about the person in authority uh, as it pertains to spiritual abuse, you want to move out in slow, thoughtful, concentric circles. And I've given you a five-step process to begin. And so question number one, or the first sign, is do you have to ask? Number two, does he delegate? Abusive pastors are usually controllers. They like to micromanage their organization and their people. There is one way to do things, and it is their way. Alternatively, when abuse is not there, you will find much biblical liberty that taps into the diversity in Christ's body. The controller does not appreciate alternate opinions, and they, those alternate opinions are not encouraged or celebrated. One of the things that we like to do here at this ministry, me personally, is that I like to delegate responsibility 
I want to peel off uh, things that I have historically done and give those things over to other people. When I started this ministry in 2008, I did everything because there was only me. My wife was full-time uh, homeschooling our children and, of course, running the home and, and doing the 24-7 wife and mother job. And so she was not doing the ministry, of course. And so I was doing everything. I was like Dick Van Dyke and uh, Mary Poppins, where you see him wearing all of these instruments around, wrapping his body, and he was playing everything with his knees, his mouth, his hands, his elbows, etc. Well, that's what this ministry was like for me in 2008. But since that time, I've been delegating, just uh, peeling pieces off of me and giving it to other people. And now we have at least 10, I think, other people or organizations that are part of our ministry doing things that I did in the past. And these people are highly competent in what they do, and so they do not need that micromanaging. But if you have a, an organization that is growing, a local church, and for example, which is the question here, and the pastor in charge in the beginning may be controlling everything because the church is small, is growing, uh, nobody really has the vision, and he's trying to implement a DNA in that local church. But then after a while, that church grows, and what you want to do is to tap into the diversity and the unique gifts of each of the members. They won't do it exactly like you, but that's the beauty of the body of Christ. And so you give them the liberty, and you're not looking over their shoulders and micromanaging their life. But a person who is a spiritual abuser, you will find that it will be hard for this individual to delegate because he wants to make sure that everybody is under his control. Question number two, does he delegate? Number three, does he clone leaders? Along with his tight control over how the church operates, you will also sense that he only uses those in lockstep with him. Think Hitler here. Hitler believed in a superior way and granted promotion only to those who gave allegiance to him. Now, you, you, you had to have his trust to carry out his policies using his methods so that his agendas could be accomplished. The spiritual abuser will test his candidates, usually with extra-biblical guidelines. These are his guidelines, and this is how he will test you because he's trying to create a clone, not a person who thinks for himself. And so the people promoted within his system will think and act similarly to him. They will be pawns who won't buck the system. It will be his system, not God's system. One of the instructive things that you'll find with his underlings is that if you ask them a question that they do not know the answer to, they will not be able to provide an answer. They will have to check in with HQ first because they can't think for themselves. They are clones. They are like robots. And if you ask them a question that is outside their sphere of understanding, meaning that they only understand what the controller understands, and if they haven't grown into this extra knowledge that the controller has, they can't answer the question because they don't have the liberty to do do so to think for themselves. The Spirit of God and His Word are no longer leading the church. The leaders keep in step with another kind of spirit. 
And so in sign number three, I'm asking you, does he clone leaders? Does he create robotic leaders? Going back to our lead pastor at our local church, uh, there is a lot of diversity in thought in our local church because each person has a unique gift. I think about the person that's over the student ministries. He is not like our lead pastor. I think about the person who's over the counseling ministry. He is not like our lead pastor. These individuals can think for themselves. The Spirit of God and His Word are leading the church, and the lead pastor doesn't have a need or a sense in, in this church, in our church, uh, to where everybody has to think and do it exactly like him. And so, again, sign number three is, does he clone leaders? Now, number four is, does he clone a culture? And this just makes sense because if, if all the leaders within his immediate sphere, if they have to do it exactly like him, well, then those leaders are going to ensure that everybody in the congregation is doing it like him as well. And so what you're going to have is a culture. Because of his heavy-handed control and his cloning of leaders, you'll begin to notice a lack of diversity in your church. Now, I'm using the word diversity. I've said it three times now, and I'm using it in a biblical way, talking about the unique gifting that we see that Paul talked about in Corinthians about the eye and the hand and the toe, that, that we all are diverse, and that is a proper diversity and a, a proper use of that word. And you'll see that in a church that doesn't have a heavy-handed controller. But in a church that lacks that, they will create their own language, their own mannerisms, their own customs, and it will be just like the leader. And when guests visit this church, they will notice how different it is from other local churches. And those inside the clone factory, they will take this as a compliment. Yes, we are different. And there is such a smug arrogance that is wrapped in a false humility that it is hard to perceive that. But some people are some people have enough awareness to know that there is something wrong here. Those inside the church won't necessarily perceive it, but those outside the clone factory, they will think that this is a cult. And that's one of the things that we've heard so often uh, when I pastored this church. They said this, they, they, would, they would be careful and they would qualify the word cult, but it would come up so often because we were, we were not aligned with how Christianity has been for the last 2,000 years, not in, in certain ways. But the truth is, is that no sensible Christian should walk into any Christian church and believe it is a cult because of its unique language, mannerisms, and customs. I mean, if that word shows up on your radar when you walk into a church building, then there might be something wrong. Paul wrote to many churches teaching them how to think and how to behave. And you see a consistent pattern throughout church history of local church body life. I think about it like uh, Chick-fil-A. When you go into Chick-fil-A, you see a DNA, and it doesn't matter which Chick-fil-A you go into. We've been in every state in America and, and in every state that has a Chick-fil-A. All of them do not, sadly to say. 
but all the ones that we have been in, we know what we're going to get because there is a DNA that flows through the entire network of Chick-fil-A. Local churches should be like that as well. There should be a similarity to where we pretty much know what we're going to expect when we walk inside of any building uh, around the world. Now, there will be differences because of culture, uh, but there will be a similarity that will, uh, that will uh, give you the idea that this is a Christian church. And so within diversity in all the local churches, there is a similarity between those churches worldwide. And if your church is becoming something other than what anyone would typically expect from a New Testament local church, while making allowances for nomadic, spirit-led diversity, there may be a danger. This problem will point back to the tight-fisted control of the leader. And so question number four that I'm asking you, number three, does he clone leaders and then out of that, naturally, you ask the question, does he clone a culture, which is question number four. I'm talking about eight signs to see if you have spiritual abuse in your church. Number five, what do you think? If you're not around your pastor, are you less guarded? That's what I mean by what do you think or how do you think. You see, when you're around a controller, you're not free to think for yourself. And so if you're not around your pastor, this person uh, that you're talking about, are you less guarded? Are you freer? Are you free to be you? I'm not talking about the fear of pastor syndrome. Now, I realize that when some people get around the pastor, they, they have fear of men on steroids, and they can't be free because they're, they're more about themselves and they're insecure. I call it fear of pastor syndrome. Uh, and they're insecure people who are intimidated by authority figures. And so, yeah, that's there. And there's also people who overly exalt their pastor, and so they become something that they are not when they get around an authority figure because they think he is bigger than life. Okay, that's there. Uh, that happens, and I'm not talking about that. But what I am talking about is a person who doesn't struggle with fear of man necessarily, but when he gets around this person, he can't be who he is. Uh, he's not free to think for himself. He doesn't have a sense of personal agency. And I felt this so strongly when I was part of the local church that I referenced earlier. When I was around the spiritual abusive pastor, I became another kind of human because it was just simply the path of least resistance. And one of the things that I struggled so much with was the fact that I was becoming something that I actually detested. And that was one of the, the, the straws that broke the camel's back. Because when you're not around him, uh, you feel a sense of freedom. You feel your old self coming back. And you'll see this in marriages as well. When one spouse is being spiritually abused by another, that you're very tight-lipped and you, you morph into something that you believe will be the path of least resistance for you. You're not free. And again, that's the sign that I was talking about when I said, what do you think? Maybe I should better say that. How do you think? Or... But the point here is, do you have agency when you are around uh, the individual? See, one of the pastor's greatest strength is his ability to build up another person while humanizing himself. Do you feel edified and free to be the person that God calls you to be, or are you more cautious? 
about your words and actions around him. Again, think about Hitler again. If I were around Hitler, I would guard my words and my actions. If I were around Jesus, I would be more relaxed and free to be myself. When we go to God in prayer, we have a freedom to do that, even though we know that he knows our thoughts and intentions of the heart, according to Hebrews 4. But yet there is a relaxation. There is a shalom of the soul because we know what it's going to be like to be around him, and we can be open and honest and vulnerable and transparent with him. If I were not relaxed around Jesus and I had fear of Jesus syndrome, like some people have fear of pastor syndrome, well, Jesus would lead me into that freedom. He would not put me into a deeper bondage. I know that I can make a mistake around Jesus. I would be nervous about messing up around Hitler. The abusive pastor makes you more self-aware and self-conscious. He turns conscience, conscious. And he turns you inward into yourself. It is an inwardly curved soul that begins to devour yourself. And that is the disordering effect that I'm talking about. You feel more constricted and less free, especially when you are around him. And so sign number five, what do you think? Are you free to think and be the person that God calls you to be when you are around a, a, per, uh, a pastor or an authority figure? If you aren't, then maybe that's a sign of spiritual abuse. Number six, are you free to speak? Number five is how you think. Number six is are you free to speak? Can you tell him what you are thinking? Let's go back to Jesus again. Prayer is one of your most beautiful means of grace as God's child. You are encouraged to talk to Him. You can tell Him anything and never feel any undesirable or fear any undesirable repercussions. Your pastor is the Lord's under-shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. And as the under-shepherd, God has called him to emulate the good shepherd as he provides an example for you to follow. You should be as free to talk to your pastor as you are free to speak to the Lord. And in any other authoritative context, like husbands and wives and parents and children, there should be that freedom to be able to speak. Now, again, as your children grow older and they're, they're maturing and they're also mortifying their own fear of man, I mean, they too are making this transition from a child where I obey in all things, and this is not a democracy, and that it's a dictatorship when kids are younger. But then as kids grow, as they become young adults at 12, 13, 14 years of age, and they are maturing into, well, then it becomes a democracy. And as they work through their own fear of man issues, then they should have a freedom to speak. Now, Peter talked about this idea of domination over another person in 1 Peter 5.3. He said, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so under this Point here, number six, are you free to speak? I want to ask you some questions. Can you share your concerns with him, whatever they are? This is one of the things that we have tried to communicate as clear as possible uh, to our children. And I've also done this in counseling sessions many times. As I would tell people, I'm not interested in truth right now, as in God's truth. I'm interested in your truth. 
I want you to share whatever is on your mind uh, because that's the only way that we're going to be able to communicate. So tell me what you are thinking, whether we're talking to our children or talking uh, to a counselee. Uh, can you share your concerns with him, whatever they are? Number two, do you believe you, you can trust him? Number three, does your pastor steward your thoughts and concerns like Jesus, always seeking your best? Uh, the pastor that I was associated with would cuss me out. Uh, he's, he cursed me out on several occasions when I shared my opinion with him, and I, I learned not to do that. That was just not, that was not a thing anymore. And, and this goes back to uh, what I was saying earlier about being free around him. This was talking about a wife not being free around her husband. If you get cursed out, uh, for trying to speak your mind, then you are going to become an altered soul, an altered individual uh, whenever that you are in his uh, orbit. But then you, when you are away from him, you will sense a freedom, a, fr a freedom internally and a freedom to be and a freedom to speak. Can you disagree with him? Does he approach your differing opinions as a learner, not a defender of his position? Is he willing to allow you to exercise your views as long as they are not contrary to the Bible? And, of course, that is affirmed by multiple people, if necessary, that you can have an alternate view that is not out of line with the Bible. And then finally, is he willing to change his mind because he sees the wisdom and the value from your input? Eight signs to see if there's spiritual abuse in the church. Number six, are you free to speak? Number seven, is he ignorant? Is he ignorant? And I'm using 1 Timothy 3, 6 here, where Paul was giving Timothy a list of what a pastor should be. And in 1 Timothy 3, 6, he says he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit. And so I'm using the word ignorant as in immature, unlearned. A pastor can be a novice. Now, he may not be a recent convert, but he could act like a recent convert. It's called failure to thrive as far as the physical disability is concerned, and that is an individual who is born, and now they're 20 years old, and they're still in a bassinet. That's called failure to thrive, physically speaking, as far as the euphemism is concerned. But spiritually, there can also be failure to thrive as well. You can be a Christian for a long time, but still in a bassinet. This is what Paul was warning about. I'm, I'm sorry, the Hebrew writer was warning about in Hebrews 5, where he says, By this time, you should be eating, milk, uh, eating meat, but you are drinking milk at this time. And so I want you to carefully ask this question, is he ignorant? One of the patterns that I've noticed in our church culture today is how the process for selecting pastors does not always pay attention to the more essential details. In many cases, the qualifications for a pastor are not what Paul listed in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. It is more about a person's ambition to be in a ministry, possibly his education, maybe his charisma, maybe his leadership ability. The church is looking for a particular guy, but his character is not at the top of the list. Now, one of the reasons is, is because you can't discern character in a minute. And many times when people select pastors, uh, they select them quicker than they have time to discern the person's character. A genuine desire to be a pastor 
and an excellent pastoral education or a leadership gift, it does not make you a good leader. Hitler had two of these things. He had a strong desire to be great. He had ambition to be a leader. He also had a pronounced leadership gift, albeit it was twisted, but he had a, he had a pronounced leadership gift. He was not an educated man, but he was street smart. And so he could almost qualify. In fact, he could, he could qualify to be a pastor in many local churches. But the qualifications that Paul gave Timothy were mostly about a person's character. I mean, except for the gift of teaching. When you look at that list, except for the gift of teaching, the criteria for a pastor, they're really the same for any believer, but they are character-oriented. They are character-saturated. They are Christ-like character traits found in the person's heart, which takes much time to discern. There have been too many instances where folks have given men the reins of a local church, even though they were deficient in character. Maybe they had the charisma, the speaking ability, the leadership gift. Premature promotion is a disaster for the church people, for the pastor himself, for his family, and of course for God's fame. It is easier not to put a person in ministry than to put him in ministry and remove him later because the fallout can be disastrous and it can be generational. Eight signs to see if there's spiritual abuse in the church. One, uh, or number seven rather, is is he ignorant? And then number eight, is he humble? Has he created an environment for personal growth and relationship building? Servant leaders develop environments of grace communities of grace, context of grace, where those they serve can grow and mature into the unique Christ-like people that God has called them to be. The humility of the leader accomplishes this, not his pride. Your spiritual abuse question also applies to you, the person who wrote this question. I mean, I want to ask you with all humility, as, as I would address this in my own life as well, can your spouse and your friends share their concerns with you? Do you create an environment of grace that is compelling and inviting for them to come and to share their perspectives, whatever their perspectives may be? If they cannot share because of your immaturity or because of your anger or your unwillingness to listen, then you must reconsider how you affect them. A humble man or a humble woman will want to hear about areas of weakness because... The humble person is never about himself. The humble pastor welcomes grace-motivated, grace-concerned individuals seeking his best for God's glory. That kind of pastor is an active learner, willing to change, willing to grow, willing to mature. Uh, That particular person is a good under-shepherd. I have titled this, Eight Signs of Spiritual Abuse. I've put these in question format. Uh, Because, again, I don't know the situation. I don't know uh, where you live. I don't know the pastor that you may be referring to or the local church. And so the eight signs of possible abuse. Number one, do you have to ask? Number two, does he delegate? Number three, does he clone leaders? Number four, does he clone a culture? Number five, What do you think, or how do you think, or are you able to think? 
Number six, are you free to speak uh, when around him? And then number seven, is he ignorant, novice, failure to thrive as a Christian? And then finally, uh, number eight, is he humble? I've titled this Eight Signs of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. Let me wrap up quickly here. I want to just ask two questions. Question number one, is there an authority figure in your life whom you believe is abusing you or someone else? How do they align with these eight signs? Perhaps you can add other potential signs. Sign number one is, do you have to ask? And so if you think you see it, then I appeal to you to work through what I've just presented to you. If you want to read the transcript of it and spend more time thinking about this, then I would encourage you to go to lifeovercoffee.com. You can look for the article, Eight Signs of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. By the way, at the bottom of the article, there's a print button. It's big and it's right in the middle at the bottom. And you can print this off. And then you can make copies of it, or you can send the link uh, to someone or multiple people and, and get together with all discretion, all sobriety, with broken hearts, actually. And you could talk about this in a very private manner as you're trying to figure this out. Question number two, if you believe abuse is happening, then will you talk to a competent and trusted friend about this to affirm or dismiss your assumptions? It's not wrong to talk to others about someone else if your motives are redemptive and you hope to resolve a potential issue. This is a horrific thing, and I have experienced it, and it took years to overcome it. I don't wish this on anyone, but I'm also not blind to what happens in our churches. And as I said earlier, there are way more. There are zillions more pastors that are doing it right, and we want to be careful how we talk about the local church and how we talk about those uh, pastors because they are doing it well. But sometimes that is not the case. And with all courage and compassion and with a whole lot of competency, we want to step into it and see what we see and then proceed uh, with all circumspection uh, because we love God and we love God's body. Thank you so much. I'm Rick Thomas, Life Over Coffee. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.